Hello, and welcome to another episode of PS Editor's Podcast. I'm Atul Gawande, a surgeon, a writer, and public health researcher at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health here in Boston. And I'm also the executive director of Ariadne Labs, a health systems innovation center. Today, I'm taking over the reins from Greg as host for a special edition of this podcast. And I'm going to get to talk to Dr. Catherine Semrau, who leads the Better Birth Program at Ariadne Labs. And I want to talk to her about a startling fact. 99% of deaths in childbirth, deaths of moms and babies, are known to be avoidable. We have the knowledge. We even have the will. But although we've made progress in reducing those deaths, we still don't know how to make sure the right thing happens. Catherine is a maternal and newborn health epidemiologist who has spent more than 15 years working on ways to improve care and health outcomes for women and babies in Africa and Asia. For the last three years, she has led the Better Birth Study in Uttar Pradesh, India, one of the largest studies ever conducted in maternal and newborn health, of which I got to be a lucky part of in that study as well. It is the first study to demonstrate large-scale improvement in care during the 48 hours around childbirth when women face the greatest risk of death and complications. But those improvements were not enough to reduce the maternal and perinatal mortality rate in Uttar Pradesh. It made the care better, a lot better, and yet deaths did not fall. So our puzzle is why. So let's dive in. So Catherine, women die in childbirth all over the world and in the US. We believe 99% are avoidable. Uh, but why do mom, moms and babies die from childbirth? What What is the cause? Well, thanks so much for the opportunity to talk a little bit about this work. There are seven big killers of moms and babies, and these causes of death are the same around the world, whether they're in the United States or in India. But for women, we see that the leading causes of death around the time of childbirth are hemorrhage, or too much bleeding, hypertension, also known as eclampsia, and sepsis, or infection, uh, for women. But for newborns, we see that the real causes of death are asphyxia, or difficulty breathing right in the first few minutes after delivery, um, prematurity, and also children die of sepsis. The thing is, like you rightly pointed out, is that we know how to address these causes of death through proper clinical care when a woman is pregnant and all the way through the postpartum period. And especially during labor and delivery, we know that monitoring blood pressure and temperature can address those concerns. We know that hand washing to prevent infection and making sure that the proper equipment and supplies are available at the ready to actually deal with these causes of death. So... If I were to take an example here, I mean, um, it's it's astonishing to me how uh, childbirth is a kind of brutal thing, right? Ten um, percent of babies are born with difficulty breathing. Mm-hmm. So let's just give it, take that as an example. What is what makes ninety nine percent of death from that difficulty breathing? avoidable? What has to happen at the bedside? So at the bedside, the birth attendant has to first of all recognize that the child is having difficulty breathing. And the interaction or the intervention is really about, first of all, ensuring that the airway is clear. If it's not, using the neonatal bag and mask to help that baby start breathing on their own. 
So in order for all that to happen, there has to be a chain of events. So first of all, recognition by the staff that there's a difficulty breathing. Second, having the supplies and equipment available at the bedside, not somewhere else in the clinic or in the facility, but making sure the uh, bedside tray is ready with the supplies and equipment needed. And then the staff have to have the right skills and capabilities to be able to actually conduct appropriate newborn resuscitation. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating how prosaic it is, right? So the 10% of babies born uh, with difficulty breathing uh, seems like it should be simple to recognize that, that uh, you know, they're struggling, but, it, but it's uh, not always totally obvious. Mm-hmm. And then the very first thing you do is you, you, is you dry the baby with a clean cloth and really stimulate vigorously. Um, and that gets like 90% of them going, but that sterile towel may not even be there. And that that's a problem that you know you had to figure out how to solve in this in this study, and then you had to go farther and have you know this more complicated thing a bag and mask and then use it properly. Mm-hmm. So, you know, was the the approach that we took here, how did um, we achieve major changes where those things started to happen more commonly? So we really focused on a systems wide approach that. A- that use the WHO Safe Childbirth Checklist, which is an itemized list of 28 actions or interventions that are evidence-based practices that should be done for every mom, every baby around the world during labor and delivery. We paired that checklist with a peer coaching model that focused on nurses coaching nurses, physicians coaching physicians about how to improve the care that's being um, conducted at the bedside. So really, it was about strengthening the communication in the clinic, ensuring that supplies and equipment were available, and making sure that the skills in the, of the staff were appropriate. Can I pause there for a second? Mm-hmm. I mean, what's radical about that is um, normally we'd say, hey, go get training, go take a course, uh-huh. you will figure out how to do this, and then you come in. Why put Um, uh, what makes it a systems approach by putting someone at the bedside? Well, first of all, it's taking the training out of being an external place where people go off and get trained and rather doing it in the in the room where nurses, birth attendants are actually conducting their labor and delivery work so that it is focused on the reality on the ground of what these birth attendants are having to deal with. But second of all, it's focused not just on one intervention alone or one birth attendant alone, but rather focusing on communication with the leaders, focusing on the district level staff, the state level staff. So it's not just about one individual birth attendant, but the whole health system um, as an approach to, to tackle this problem. Yeah, the, the nurse can't solve the, there's no sterile towel available or the baby mask isn't working. And yet working, you know, so that sounds daunting, but um, working on the system, they were delivering, you know, your data is, our our data from the trial. uh, And how big was this trial? This this was huge. Yeah, so we worked in 120 facilities. 60 of the facilities got the intervention. 60 were just control sites, so had standard of care. But we followed 160,000 mother-infant pairs over a two-year period to find out if we had made a difference in First of all, the care that was being provided to these women and children, but also uh, their mortality rates. So how much did the care change? So the care changed dramatically. In the standard sites or the control sites that did not receive the uh, checklist plus coaching, their adherence to practices was was about 40% overall. But less than 1% of the staff were washing hands before delivery. Only 25% of the women were receiving the right uh, medication to prevent hemorrhage. And that was in the control sites. 
Where we see a big change is with the intervention coaching plus the checklist, we saw that the intervention sites had 70% adherence to these practices. So 80% of the moms were receiving the right drugs to prevent hemorrhage um, after labor and delivery. So we know that there can be a shift in these behaviors. We did see dramatic improvements in the quality of care that's being provided at these front-level facilities. And then? And then we looked at mortality, and we did not see an actual impact on uh, perinatal mortality, so those are stillbirths and early neonatal deaths, and we didn't see a difference in maternal mortality either. And I think what we're coming to understand out of the trial is that it really has to do with, yes, we achieved behavior change, but we didn't solve all the underlying difficulties or problems. We see that the gaps in supplies and equipment weren't fully addressed. We see that skills and capabilities of the staff or the leadership wasn't sufficient to overcome challenges. Um, we also see that there's a lack of connection between this frontline facility and higher level facilities that can manage complications appropriately. So um, that means you know the context matters a lot. So give us a picture here. What does childbirth look like in a typical primary health care facility where, you know, we were measuring 5% death rate for, um, uh, for the babies, right? Mm-hmm. 5% were either stillborn or died within the, f- within the, the first week um, around delivery. So what, what do these places look like where the delivery is occurring if there are other problems that have to be fixed? Right. So I want you to think about a concrete block building. It typically has three to five rooms. One room is dedicated to labor and delivery, and in that room is one to two beds. And the beds are typically metal beds that are raised up off the ground to help the birth attendant um, be able to catch the the baby or deliver the baby well. But we often see that these facilities don't have curtains or privacy between the delivery beds. You may have several women delivering at once in these facilities. There may not be electricity or constant heat or running water in these facilities. And women often come to the facilities quite advanced in labor. So the time that you have to intervene um, and catch a complication early during the laboring period is short. We also see that women stay for less than 24 hours after labor and delivery, often because it may be a crowded room or a crowded space. There may not be a recovery room available to those women. So that's another time period that's very important in the life, uh, in the life cycle for a woman and her child, in that we see that in the, within the first 24 hours is the period when you can catch most of the complications. It's the highest risk period for the baby. So if a woman's not actually staying at a facility after labor and delivery for that 24-hour period, we miss the opportunity to catch those complications. I think the other thing to point out is that we're seeing through some new research that respectful maternity care is lacking in many parts of the world. Up to a quarter or a third of women are disrespected or abused. Um, They may be hit or slapped at the facility or have an episiotomy without consent. And many women don't know necessarily what to expect when they go to these facilities. But we see that women vote with their feet. They come to the facility late, maybe because they don't trust the care that they're going to receive, and they're leaving early because it doesn't have the accommodation that they need. Um, I would like to point out, though, from my experience, that birth attendants around the world really do want good outcomes for the moms and babies, just like a family wants to go home with a bundle of joy. And so they really are working, these birth attendants, with 
what they have um, at their hands at, at the bedside. And I think making sure that the facilities can actually accommodate and provide high quality care is where we need to go globally. Yeah, so the interesting thing to me, having gotten to visit these places with you and the rest of the team um, and see how birth really works, what's the system really like, that picture is stark. The, and the way I've come to think of it is really understanding these are places that are really primary health care clinics. They are not hospitals, right? The, the, the uh, outpatient department, the OPD, as everybody calls it, that is where the doctors are, the doctor usually, is most busy. They come in and they have people they are seeing around the clock for all primary health care issues. And then they'll see a woman who might be pregnant and do some prenatal care, and then they will come back to deliver at that clinic. Mm-hmm. And so the clinic will have that side room where there are deliveries and then a, and then a recovery room. But um, uh, it'll typically be the nurse who will be the one who will do the delivery. They'll call the doctor if they, if they are having any problem, if there's help. But it's really expected that the nurses are doing the delivery. Can you give us a picture of the nurse? How experienced are they? Um, what are, uh, what kinds of uh, capacity uh, and capabilities do they have if the woman needs a c-section uh, uh, how does the doctor have those capabilities is there capacity for those things here no it's a great question in this setting it's important to differentiate that the nurses that were providing labor and delivery care are not midwives those are different cutters of, of health facility staff so in this setting, in Better Birth Trial, we see that the birth attendants that were providing the majority of care are nurses, staff nurses, who typically have two to three years of theoretical classroom training. And then they come into the facilities um, where they have been trained to be a general nurse, not necessarily a labor and delivery nurse. There is an additional training that about half of the birth attendants had received called a skilled birth attendant training where they are um, taught about the, the most appropriate and better ways to provide labor and delivery care. But you see that these staff nurses work in labor and delivery rooms. Most of the women nurses in our um, study had about nine years of experience on average, but hadn't received additional training in about four years. When it comes to the physician interaction at these frontline facilities, as you mentioned, there's one physician. They may or may not have C-section uh, skills. And often these facilities actually cannot conduct C-sections. There's not an operating theater. So women are referred on to a higher level facility. Um, what percentage of our patients, 160,000, you know, you and I were part of a global study where we recognized that that um, that about 19% of deliveries mm-hmm. uh, uh, need a C-section, or at least when C-sections are up to that level, you get significant improvements in mortality. Um, because it addresses babies who are stuck and therefore having difficulty with asphyxiation or major maternal hemorrhage um, obstruction that can lead to sepsis for the mom as well. Um, what was the rate of C-section given that they couldn't deliver here and then had to, had to move onward to the next facility if they were in a bad way? So our C-section rate in the trial was 2%, which is much lower than what we would have expected. As you just pointed out, you know, WHO recommends anywhere between 15 to 20 percent to actually see an impact on maternal mortality is where we see that break point. 
Um, and so I think this speaks to us in a couple of ways. One, women in these are coming to these facilities but aren't necessarily being referred up to the higher level facilities for that C-section um, or may have been laboring for, for quite some time. All right, so then we're getting to the nub of the issue, right? So the, the, the study came out in the New England Journal just this past December. Um, an editorial was written alongside it. Uh, it's always disappointing to have to publish a trial that says we made a big change in, in delivering the thing that we thought would make the big difference, but we didn't get the death reduction. Mm -hmm. And the editorial that was written around, uh, beside it said, look, it could not have been more rigorously, more carefully done, and it seems evident that um, these kinds of primary health facilities, where the majority of care is being de delivered, simply can't be improved enough to get to high-quality care, that, that women need to be delivering in hospitals where they can get a higher capacity for C-section, where they, you know, hemorrhage, what, severe hemorrhage is in about 3%, and you could have uh, access to blood transfusion. We recognize another 3% had eclampsia, high blood pressure, and in most cases, still not being adequately treated, mm -hmm. however much we're putting a checklist into place to follow through on it. Um, so what do you think? Is that right? It's not that rural primary facilities can never provide labor and delivery care. I think that kind of blanket statement could be challenging. A rural facility in India may deliver more than 2,000 babies a year. A rural facility in Namibia may deliver five or 600 babies a year. And so it's really about the capability of the health facility and the health system functionality. We know from other global work that health facilities that deliver less than 500 babies per year um, probably should not be providing labor and delivery services because the staff can't keep up their skills to, to be able to manage complications or manage um, difficult situations appropriately. And we know that about 15% of women have some kind of complication around the time of childbirth. But it's really about making that frontline facility capable to handle the complications appropriately and have connections to a higher level facility that can provide C-section in a very short time. I don't think we're ever going to get to the place where we build hospitals everywhere that can provide C-sections capability for all women everywhere. But it really is about strengthening the health system and connecting these lower level facilities to a hospital but it has to be fast. It has to have the transport system. It has to have the referral systems that can function. All right, I want to dig into this. This, sure. this, this, is, um, this is a really interesting fundamental question, right? Um, my parents are from India, uh, and you know, my father's from a rural village that is the kind of village that we were trying to help in this kind of program. But I also grew up in, so where they settled, they're both doctors, they settled in rural Ohio, mm -hmm. in, the, in Athens County, the poorest county in Ohio, in the Appalachian foothills. And where I grew up there uh, in the 70s, um, you know, our first obstetrician came in 1968. Mm -hmm. We had no anesthesiologist, no formally trained anesthesiologist until 1983. Mm -hmm. So um, this was a rural community. Uh, it had it did not have 500 deliveries a year. Hmm. Um, when the obstetrician went out of town, it was just a nurse available to do deliveries, and we had to rely on transport. The next place was 45 miles away mm -hmm. that would have you know, a, a, a medical capability. And achieving that death reduction required getting to the place where you had you know, at least midwife-level capability, obstetrician or surgeon, immediately available to do C-section, have the blood transfusion 
uh, capacity, have the anesthesia capacity, that kind of thing. For a town of about 20,000 people, a county of about 120,000 people, which is not that different from the, from the communities that we're talking about in India. Um, and, uh, and, and the striking thing to me is around the 1920s in the United States, when our GDP per capita wasn't that different from, you know, China's now is higher than our GDP per capita was then. And we actually said, we have to build that hospital capability there. We, we said, as a government focus, you know, the Hill-Burton Act was all about building hospitals all across the country mm -hmm. and then figuring out and staffing that capability. And lo and behold, part of the reason why my parents came to that kind of place was because we as a government started paying for it and saying you have to drive that capacity. They came in 1960 um, to, to build that to, to capability. So I'm going to, uh, you know, is the, if the reality is that these are all the pieces you got to put together to save moms and babies, mm -hmm. um, is this, isn't this then the direction that, that y you have to create? I think the argument of having women access tertiary care facilities or facilities that can access, can conduct C-sections is right in the long term. But we have to have a process to make labor and delivery safer now and not in 10, 15, 20 years. A similar argument can be made when it- It took about 50 years right. <laughs> for my county. Right. Right. And so I think this idea about, yes, the goal is to get everybody to well-equipped, well-staffed, capable facilities that can provide the right levels of complication management, C-section capability, all of that. Yes, that's where we need to be aiming. But we have to have a strategy that can work in many different settings that may not have the economic resources that are going to be able to build hospitals rapidly. Um, and I think that has to do with the cadre of staff, so making sure that nurses have the right level of training, but also midwifery, I think, is an important component in um, a health system for labor and so delivery. So we can train more midwives. Yep. Um, but again, that still takes time, right? Mm -hmm. So all of these interventions, we need to think about what can we do for the long term, which is bigger infrastructure, bigger hospitals capability, midwifery training, but also what can we do immediately about ensuring that supplies and equipment are available, ensuring that the staff that are conducting labor and delivery actually have the skills to be able to deal with a complication when it comes up because they come up fast. It's not like they are always um, readily predictable. So uh, um, one thing that really struck me was that the mortality rate for newborns, we could see it by facility. Um, maternal death rates are lower, so you couldn't quite make out the variation. But by facility, it was really wide yes. variation. Mm -hmm. um, how high did the mortality rate get? And how low did the mortality rate get? Because if, if it can, you know, maybe we can drive towards everybody being at least down to that level. Exactly. I think that's a, a great point, Atul. The variation in perinatal mortality was as high as 104 deaths per thousand. So 10% of babies at one of these facilities was dying before seven days postpartum. And the lowest rate of mortality we saw was 14 deaths per thousand, which is just 1.4%, which is much closer to a middle income country's rate of perinatal mortality. And I think what we have the opportunity now is to really learn what were these low-level, low-mortality settings doing that was so different than what the high-mortality sites were doing. I want to talk about what you, we saw in Namibia where we had a partner there, um, a district hospital there, that adopted the checklist and the coaching model. They started at 70 percent 
And then what happened? Yeah, so they started at 70% adherence to these basic practices and over a two-year period achieved 90% adherence to the practices. But this is in a hospital setting, a district hospital setting. They had midwives that were providing labor and delivery care, and they had a leader who is extremely passionate about quality improvement and ensuring that his staff had a skills lab. They did maternal death audits or maternal death reviews. And so their approach was much more about ensuring adding the training, the supplies and equipment, and the um, review process with feedback at all levels of the system as well. So it seems like there are building blocks here, right? So um, they were able to get to 90% because they had midwife-level trained people, so they had mm-hmm. the skills to, if the baby's not breathing, you could make sure the resuscitation's there. Right. They had um, enough organization that they could get the supplies and systems um, to be consistently there, and that could pull them from 70% to 90%. I was really struck by the fact that they reported not just a 50% reduction in stillbirths, but they went from having maternal deaths usually three to four a year, to having none in two years, which is, and now it's been more than two years, which is astonishing. Exactly. They really have been quite the success story. And I think they have a good model for us to think about the package of intervention that came together to make that successful. Um, So last couple questions. One is, uh, why after the trial are we still nonetheless seeing um, 30 countries where people are now wanting to roll out the approach and test it themselves? I think that globally, the maternal and newborn health community is really looking for interventions that can be successful, not just using one-off interventions, but about a systems approach. And I think the WHO Safe Childbirth Checklist provides guidance around what are the key practices and the guidelines that need to be adhered to, and it acts as a, a, a tool of where we need to get. Um, And the WHO Safe Childbirth Checklist in these 30 countries is being used in a myriad of ways. It's being used as a training tool in pre-service training. It's being used as a checklist at the bedside with labor and delivery. It's being used to help identify where the gaps are in the health system with respect to supplies and equipment or challenges that people are facing. So we're seeing, and I'm excited to see, how are these different countries implementing the checklist with different implementation strategies, all focused on achieving lower mortality rates for women and newborns. Awesome. Well, um, I was really struck by the fact that it was not just, you know, we were seeing it roll out in Indonesia and Chiapas, Mexico, and uh, other parts of India, other parts of Africa, but then Italy. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, the U.S. has got the highest mortality rate of major developed countries in the, o- in the OECD data. Um, and two of the biggest problems are not getting the blood pressure management right, not getting the hypertension right, and we're even seeing systems here adopt uh, the checklist kind of approach. And so we'll see whether in the right setting you get the mortality reduction or not. I'm going to throw a wish list question for you. All right, if you had unlimited funds right now, um, uh, what would be the most important thing you would say can be done and should be done uh, or list of things, what, what would you, how would you spend it? Where, where does it need to go now? With the long-term goal of getting women into well-equipped, well-staffed facilities, as was outlined in the commentary, I think the pathway towards where we need to go now, and my wish list would start off with ensuring that provider skills and the number of staff that are available at these facilities actually matches the need. Um, so that the 
labor and delivery staff can actually manage complications, that they can refer women appropriately when C-sections are required. And it's more than just sending women or birth attendants to training. It's actually an ongoing process of continuous medical education. And I think that needs to be greatly improved globally. I think second, this connected connection of the health system. We're not overnight, as I said earlier, going to get women into hospitals. So we have to make the health facilities that are now currently doing labor and delivery be connected to the higher level facility appropriately with uh, the right tools of referral. And that means dealing with transportation systems, but also means dealing with communication systems between this lower and higher level facility. And I think finally, we really need to focus on community relationships. Globally, we have pushed women to deliver in facilities. Those facilities are not always delivering on the quality of care that we have promised these women. And I'm concerned that women vote with their feet. They know where the high quality is. They know whether they trust, have trusted relationships with um, the providers. And I really think we need to understand more about what women expect, ensure that they fully know their rights um, and what they should the care that they should receive in these facilities. And so it's really about building relationships of, of trust and respect with the community as well. Well, it's such daunting work, but I think what you're helping show is that it is tractable. There are ways you make progress. We can drive quality improvements and just have to figure out the leverage to put it together. Thank you for taking the time to join me. Uh, it's been Catherine Semrau and uh, uh, an amazing body of work with the Better Birth study. Thank you for joining me on today's PS Editors podcast. And that's it for this episode. Um, Thanks to everybody for listening. Be sure to rate and review this podcast and subscribe on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes.